Well, if you would please turn with me again to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, a rather ambitious size of a chunk of text this morning, especially given the density of it. Noah read it for you, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. And as we begin this morning, I want to ask the question, what comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, the grace of God? The grace of God. Many of us probably think about this phrase in terms of things that are merely spiritual, like intangible things, something to do with the soul. That's the grace of God. It has to do with these intangibles. We might say it has to do with things like forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, inner peace in our hearts, all things that are considered a kind of internal spiritual blessing for the children of God. And you wouldn't be wrong to say that about this term, the grace of God. However, in case you didn't notice, as we come to this two-block chapter, chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, Paul uses the word grace, and specifically the phrase, the grace of God, a total of 10 times in these two chapters out of a total of 18 in the entire letter. And contrary, as we read these two chapters, contrary to what we may think of as merely spiritual things, he uses the term with an emphasis on gracious giving for other people's real, tangible needs. Things that are tangible, things that are physical, things that are material, things that can only be purchased with money. Now, the occasion of these two chapters is born out of Paul's particular passion to care for believing Christians who are Jewish in Jerusalem. And we're told that they're going through incredibly difficult times. Now, here's some things that we know about Jewish believers in Jerusalem, Christians following Jesus at that time, and why Paul is highlighting their great need. First of all, People who lived in Jerusalem in general, whether you were a Jew or Gentile or whatever you were, were subject to frequent famine. Famine, as you know, is an extreme scarcity of food. It's not going to the supermarket and not being able to find your favorite soup, so having to buy the generic version. That's not famine. Famine is going to the place that you have a storehouse of food and it's empty. There's nothing there. There's no store to go to. There's no shipping trucks coming to you anytime soon. This is caused often by a lack of rain or a blight or disease on the crops. And famine creates a lack of ability to grow those crops. And thus hunger ensues for those who suffer it. And that's frequent in the area of Jerusalem and Judea, just for people in general. So we know that There were times of famine during the New Testament that the Jewish believers are going through. Second, we know that many in the church at Jerusalem, because of the influx of people from all the nations that were there on the day of Pentecost, many of them were selling off their properties because of the unusual circumstances of all these people hanging around to listen to the apostles, to go to the temple, to break bread. And so some of them were selling off their properties. This is equivalent to selling off your vacation home, liquidating all of your savings, giving away all of your future inheritance for your children and all of the things that you had stored up for retirement, 
they were getting rid of all of that, which put them to a day by day. They had no fallback. They had no cushion. They had nothing that they could, you know, pull from the bank. And they had done this in Jerusalem, these Jewish believers, for fellow followers of Jesus to care for them after the day of Pentecost. And so famine, selling off all the retirement and properties and all of their assets. But thirdly, there was persecution for the Jewish believers in the area of Jerusalem. Because they had become followers of Jesus and Jesus was considered a heretic, a false messiah, many of these Jewish believers, as Jesus had told them, were kicked out of their synagogues. Their place of worship that they had grown up since the time of their birth from their hometowns. And they weren't certainly welcome into the temple. They were one of those Jesus followers. And this created in them not only a separation from their religious traditional activities, but in many cases their own families cut them off. Because being a Jew and being a faithful Jew and then following a so-called false messiah would get you cut off. Jesus says, I came not to bring peace among the family, but to bring a sword. And so there are fathers and mothers not talking to their sons and daughters anymore. There are brothers and sisters who are no more having engagement. You can't come to our house to eat anymore. You're unclean. You're following a crucified, cursed Messiah. And so they're cut off from their extended family. And that also means a socioeconomic or an economic impact because they can't even do business with other Jews if they're faithful, believing Jews, because, again, they're Jesus of Nazareth followers. And then lastly, these Jews in Jerusalem, besides the famine, the selling off the properties, the persecution, the separation from their religious traditions and their families, they were practicing an unauthorized religion. And when the government finally figures out that Jesus and his movement is not exactly Judaism, the heat will begin to be turned up. And so now they are practicing what will be noted as an unauthorized religion, which could cause problems with the Roman government and eventually does to the point of them being impaled on sticks and lit on fire. Finally, Paul is aware because of his own participation in Jerusalem that there were, before he was a Christian, by the way, that there were Christian men and women who had been in prison, who he had imprisoned in the name of Jesus or for the name of Jesus. And the upshot of that is there are children left without the care of their parents because Paul, Saul, before his conversion, had them locked up. And because he became a Christian doesn't mean they were all released. They're still in jail, many of them. Women had had their husbands drug off. Their only means of financial provision were drug off by Paul himself. So all of these things together, it's no wonder that Paul, not just because, hey, those Jews are one of us, they're one of me, they're my own flesh and blood. He has a deep, deep burden for the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, to be clear, Paul was not unconcerned about Gentiles who suffered financial difficulties, which would result in poverty and hunger. He, he meets that all over the Mediterranean world. It's, it, it's, a, it, it's a sketchy, unsettling place that they live in those days. Yet he clearly carries a special burden as well as a sense of obligation 
throughout his letters that he takes to Gentile churches and appeals to them to help him to get funds to the Jerusalem Christian Jewish believers. Now, regarding the Corinthians, he had previously, now we're back at the church at Corinth, who are Gentiles. That's all the background for the Jewish believers in Paul's burden. So in regards to the Corinthians in this letter, he had previously given direction for financial offering for those Jews by these Gentiles at Corinth. We find in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4, his specific instructions. Apparently, he had gone to the Corinthians. They had accepted the challenge. And these are his instructions to help them to prepare to have a bundle of money, however much that may be. There's no specific amount that he asks for. But how to store up so that when he comes, he will be able to get this help to their brothers and sisters who were Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. He says, verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, of every week, which is the day that they would be gathering together, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit to by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So as we can see here, Paul gives instruction for a collection of money for the saints in Jerusalem specifically. The Corinthians are to collect a week by week in their church gathering to give, presumably to trusted people, They're to lay something aside as they prosper. Here we see there's not a tithe. It's not a percentage. In in the upcoming weeks, we're going to talk a little bit about that. But it is the idea as they prosper week by week, take some aside and give it there at church. This is so that when Paul arrives, he can just receive the gift and doesn't have to have people go off and try to figure out where their money is or any of that. It's already been given to entrusted people so so that when he comes, it can be taken. It's it's low friction and he can just take the money together with any of those who will accompany him. Now, these next two chapters are apparently Paul's follow-up with the Corinthians because they had not followed through on the instructions of 1 Corinthians 16. And it's very likely they didn't follow through because there was this break in the relationship between them and Paul. And they felt, felt for whatever reason, it was an opportunity just not to give to this thing that Paul wanted them to give to. So let's look together then at his instructions. This is two chapters worth, but here we're going to get to the real, the heart of, of what he's instructing them to do at this point. We're going to see there are some very important principles here. First of all, The grace of God in Macedonia. There's nothing like a little bit of guilt to motivate you to give. Or so we might say from Paul's example here. He says, verses 1 through 5, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. It's a completely, not completely, but a different area of the Mediterranean. It's a large area northeast of them. And... He he says, I want to tell you about the grace of God in those churches. For in a severe test of affliction, 
Their abundance, that is the Macedonians, of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So he begins this discussion about their need to follow up with their commitment to give to the Jerusalem believing church by giving an example of the grace of God in the churches of Macedonia. Paul begins with an example of other Christians who, though themselves in very difficult circumstances, by the way, contrary to the Corinthians. I mean, the Corinthians are living high on the hog compared to the Macedonians. They had these Macedonians given generously to the cause. What is it about the Christians in Macedonia that marks them, according to Paul? It is the grace of God. Going back to my introduction, not some you know, internal peace, not some, some idea of just my soul is forgiven. It's grace demonstrated in the generous giving of money for those who have need. What marks them is the grace of God. Their generosity is not at all because they had more to give. As a matter of fact, we're going to see it's the exact opposite than the Corinthians. But the reason for their generosity is because God was at work in them with his grace. Now, he says several things about them. First, they were presently living in a severe trial of affliction. Okay, let's just think about what Paul's saying here. Trials are hard enough by themselves. Trials of affliction are another level, which probably indicate physical, probably persecution for being Christians. And now stack on top of that severe trial of affliction. Paul is multiplying these words because these folks in Macedonia are going through it bad. And persecution probably also means that their goods are being take away, taken away. As we read in Hebrews, they're having their goods plundered by those around them. So they were living in the severe trial of affliction. In contrast to the Corinthians, which there's no apparent persecution. You see, Corinth was like a liberal city, a very tolerant city. If you want to believe in Jesus or, you know, your hubcap or, you know, the water fountain, that's okay because we're all tolerant here. That was okay. So Corinthians weren't suffering that. But in Macedonia, where there were more country people and more conservative people, whether it's the Greco-Roman gods or whether it's the Jews, the folks in Macedonia would really get it, and including from the government. But the Macedonian churches, nevertheless, despite the severe trial of, of, of affliction, were living in an abundance of joy. And this abundance of joy came from what they had been given in Christ. But they were also, he says, experiencing not just severe trials of affliction, but extreme poverty. Not just poverty. Po poverty is not like going through a hard time financially. Poverty means not having sufficient to get the things that you absolutely need, like food and housing and clothing. This is not just poverty. This is, he says, extreme poverty. Paul notes that it isn't the general difficulties of living in the ancient world, which were difficult in and of themselves, nor even poverty, but poverty that, in his estimation, was extreme. That, that's what the Macedonians are suffering. But even so, he says about them, they were overflowing in a wealth of generosity for the sake of the Jerusalem believers. He expands on this, of what this overflowing generosity looks like. So that's their condition. Now, what did it do? The overflowing joy did what? 
verse 3 and 4. For they gave, the Macedonians gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What he describes here as giving according to their means would convey the idea that they were giving what little they could even though themselves were in extreme poverty. You know, I don't have hardly anything, but I give a little bit. But their, their giving is such that it's not just according to their means, but in his estimation, like ridiculously beyond their means. You see, Paul had been with these churches. He had seen for himself their poverty and their persecution and had suffered with them. He saw them taking their little bit of food and sharing it with him, sharing it with their children. He saw them under, because they were Christians, which is important, because they were Christians, were going under incredible suffering. Paul is seated and he says, not only have they given according to their means, which is frankly nothing, but they have given beyond their means. In Paul's estimation, they gave more than they should have. They did this not, he says, under compulsion or pressure, but of their own accord. They had a meeting and they got together and they came up with a gift and they brought it to Paul. And Paul sees the amount of the gift, whatever it was. And he seems initially to have even refused it. Like, this is ridiculous, y'all. No, I'm, I'm not taking this is. This is money for bread for you and your children. This is money that you need to have shelter. This is money that you have to have to even survive. I can't take this amount of money. But notice what he says, that they begged him earnestly for the favor. The Greek word is grace, charis. They prevailed over him by begging him earnestly for the favor of taking this. They saw giving even throwing them further selves into poverty. They said, please give us the grace, the favor to take this to Jerusalem, to give our believing brothers and sisters in Jesus, these Jewish folks who have it worse than we do. It seems to indicate that Paul may have initially resisted the amount of offering due to their circumstances. And in doing so, they're not just giving money, but he says, not as we expected, they gave themselves to the Lord and to us. It may be Paul and his companions. It may be us as being the church at large. For them, this was a Godward gift, knowing that they had so much to be thankful for because of the gospel's tie to the saints in Jerusalem and the messengers that had been sent from there. So this isn't Paul pressuring them. This isn't Paul saying, give till it hurts. This isn't Paul saying, come on, come on, give more, give more. You can get it. You'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. He resists it. And they finally prevail over him by begging him to take it. And he does. Not for himself, but for their brethren, their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And so Paul uses this. He, he wheels this out. Hey, Corinthians, in all your opulence and your enjoyment, not all the Corinthians were rich. We know that from uh, 1 Corinthians itself. But a good number of them seemed to be wealthy. 
seemed to be well set. They were in a prosperous city. And he wheels this out to say, let me tell you about the Macedonians and the grace of God that is in them. Which brings us next to the completion of grace at Corinth, verses 6 and 8. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Titus had been appointed to collect the money from the Corinthians, but these two chapters indicate that he had been unsuccessful. The church failed when Titus showed up. Hey, remember 1 Corinthians 16, y'all? Remember all the... That whatever amount of money as you prosper, there's no set amount. There's, you know, there's not a, you know, one of those thermometers that we're reaching here. It's not that. It's just as you prosper, he comes, what do you got for me? And their answer is nothing. And this is, this has been going on for a year, according to what Paul's going to say here in a minute. They had committed a year ago to set something aside for these Jerusalem believers. Titus shows up. So that they could complete this act of grace. So he urges them, verse 7. As you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So Paul appeals to the best that he has seen in the Corinthian believers. Who excel in these various ways. So he encourages them to, as you excel in these other areas, so now excel in this act of grace. But then in verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Paul clarifies that this did not begin as an apostolic command. He didn't come into the church and said, I want everybody to give this percentage. This did not come into as a command and say, saying everybody has to give and you have to give to it hurts. And, and you just got it, it never started as a command. It was here is an opportunity we have to do that. And they apparently voluntarily committed themselves, said, yes, Paul, we can do this. We're willing. We're prosperous. We're desirous. It was their promise, not his command, that motivated them in the beginning. So here he is calling on a promise that they made, that they already made in response to an appeal, an appeal that they were sufficiently prosperous to carry out. So Paul wants their earnestness for the gospel and care for the church to be followed through so that others would see their love is genuine. And we might hesitate, fall back and say, well, is that really a good motive and reason to, to obedience? Well, apparently, according to Paul, it was. And as we come to verse 9, we come to the heart of the matter, which is the single theological principle that holds this entire passage together in which it is what works in all true benevolent giving in the church. And this is verse 9, the display of grace in Jesus Christ. And it's just a short snippet. It's one verse, and then he moves on. But this is the heart of everything he's saying in this section. Verse 9, for you know, right? Let me tell you about the act of grace in the Macedonians. I want you to complete this act of grace. And that because we know the grace of God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He brings front and center the work of Jesus Christ, the Lord who they profess to love and follow. And at the core of this is the Lord of glory who left the beauties of heaven to become a man 
humble himself to the point of an impoverished servant. And he did this so that we might partake of all the riches of God's grace in the heavenly places. That's his basic argument. Now, sadly, this verse has been twisted and misused as a proof text that you've heard it, right? God intends for all Christians to be financially rich in this world. And if not, you're not taking hold of the promise of God. And here it is. I mean, read it. What's it plainly say? You know, grace, he was rich for you became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Ah, there you go. Name it, claim it, big bank account coming your way, Mercedes Benz, all the stuff, bigger house, better job, etc. But here's a major problem with this false teaching found in the text itself is that it wasn't true for the Macedonian church and it wasn't true for the church in Jerusalem. On the face of it, it becomes ridiculous to say that Paul was teaching the Corinthians, already a selfish, self-absorbed, boastful people, that he would come to them and say, man, you know what you need? You need a big dose of motivation. And that motivation is you will be fat and happy and rich. They're already the fattest and happiest and riches among the churches of the ancient world. Meanwhile, Jerusalem suffers. Macedonia suffers. And it is an abomination to use this text to prove that all Christians should be rich. No, Paul is not using this glorious truth about Jesus to say, what Jesus did, he did to make you rich. Therefore, give so you can be rich. Rather, he is saying, the rich generosity of Jesus toward you is your motivation for being richly generous to others. That's it. That's it. Which brings us verse 10 and 12 to the benefit of grace to the Corinthians. Like this is going to benefit them. Verse 10, he says, In this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire it. Like it's been a year, y'all. And you've had Sunday after Sunday, first day of the week, first day of the week, Titus shows up and you got nothing for these, my brothers and sisters and your brothers and sisters who are suffering so deeply. And don't tell me, well, we just didn't get around to it or, you know, things have been tough. He's already kicked the feet out of under that uh, from under that by pointing to the Macedonians. That's really what he's doing there. Like, stop making excuses because the grace of God was active in them. And you can't give anything for this. That you promised? Paul gives his judgment of the whole situation. This keeping of their promise benefits the Corinthian church because they had previously been motivated by God to give to this work a year ago. And when they give, we'll experience God's grace in giving graciously to others. They will know and experience the grace of God. Verse 11, so now finish doing it as well. So that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Paul is simply urging them to finish this act of grace, the only imperative in this whole section. It's the only command. Finish doing it. Finish what you started. Finish what you committed to, he says. 
Let their completing it match their initial ready desire to do it. This readiness is acceptable not by putting them under undue burden of something that they can't give. We're going to see Paul's even gracious in that. He doesn't say go back and dig deep and accumulate all the things that you should have already accumulated. But they are to give out of what they have. So pick up this practice and start setting aside. It's a very gracious pastoral way that he's addressing them. Paul isn't saying to them or to anyone else, you are commanded to give until it hurts. But rather, he says, give out of what you have been keeping for yourselves. That you already said you would give. As a matter of fact, Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 16 told them how to do it in such a way that it would not be an undue burden to them. Come each week, there's no percentage, there's no demand, there's no command. As you may prosper, set something aside, give it, gather it, and then over the course of a year, it will be a trickle, 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 and at the end, all of the church together will have a substantive amount to go and help the people in Jerusalem. He was not trying to put even the Corinthian church under a burden. So what is Paul's goal in all this? Verse 13 to 15, the distribution of grace to all. He says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. But that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. So that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. While he had to be compelled to accept the overly generous offering of the Macedonian churches, which would put them under even more difficult circumstances, that was not the standard that Paul was expecting them to meet. The Macedonians don't become the example of how every Christian and every family and every church should give. They did that not under compulsion, but willingly. To the point they had to beg him to please take their money. The Macedonians aren't the standard, and it's not his intention to throw the Corinthians into bad conditions so that they themselves become poor and unable to care for themselves and their families. Rather, he desires that out of their having more than is needed, according to their own judgment, because he's not measuring bank accounts, he's not going around saying, you you get 3%, you 10, you 27. He's putting it on their own consciences. When you know that you have more than you need, your abundance that you enjoy presently, remember the brothers and sisters who are in extreme conditions who need to be cared for. Paul isn't here in this passage upholding a form of socialism where their provisions are flatlined to make sure everybody has the same amount. But the Corinthians would recognize that their having more than enough isn't intended for them to live extravagantly and more and more and more and more. But as stewards of God's Gifts for the generous care of those who have genuine need in the church. And then he quotes in verse 15, Exodus 16, 18. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. He concludes with Exodus 16, 18. It's a story when God gives daily manna to the Israelites in the wilderness. His instruction was simply to take what you need for yourself and your family for that day. Easy instructions. Just fill up your omer, 
Go home, eat it. Guess what? You'll come back tomorrow and there'll be more for you. But some of them decided to take an extra vessel, pack it extra full, put some in their pockets, save it in a Ziploc bag. Here, kids, put this under your robe. And the next day they woke up and they disobeyed God and it had turned to rot and it stunk and it had worms in it. He was teaching them to store up more than we need so often turns to just that, rot. Something that's ultimately useless. And if it consumes, if we consume it, makes us sick in the pursuit of materialism. So he tells them instead of hoarding, storing, keeping, protecting what they have with a view of securing their future provisions and comforts while others are in present need in the church, Paul enlists this principle to remind them that God is the provider for our futures. Hoarding while others are in need is not only unloving to them, but also unbelief in the God who promises to provide for his people's future. So, some applications here. First of all, I think the main idea of this passage, and this is, this is a particularly difficult passage because it's not just general principles. It's so tied to a very specific historical event and things that are happening at the church and between the church and Paul. So to extract from it general principles um, is a bit of a challenge, but here's my attempt. The main idea that we see from this week's text is that our generous giving is a work of God's grace. It is a work of God's grace in us when it's done for the good of other people in the church and care for the poor. His grace comes to people through people. And that's why the Bible says some very strong things about if you see that you have a brother or sister who is in need, you say, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but that you don't give them the things that are needed for, for the body. That it's a real problem. So the main idea is the grace of God includes not just the immaterial things of our soul, but also what we do with our money. Second, we see a principle that our promises of financial provision for those in need should be taken seriously and followed through with when able. That promises that we make to care for others, to do good to others, should be taken seriously and followed through when we're able. If we're not able... We don't have to give, then we don't have to give. We're not measured by what we don't have, but by what we do have. And then third, another principle from the text is, and this is shaped very much in my mind by John Piper, which is the assumption that an increase of income doesn't necessarily mean or indicate God's intention for an increase of standard of living. And here's, here's how Piper, from what, what I heard from him years ago, uh, I don't even remember what sermon it was. He said, Here, here's the Western American materialist, consumerist, Christian idea of, hey, honey, guess what? I got a raise. Wonderful. And the th first thing that begins to be thought is that means an upgrade in our house. That means a new car or a better car. It means uh, maybe going on a little bit of a shopping spree. It means X, Y, Z. Piper says there's just the assumption that we too often make, so often make, very frequently make, is that an increase of income means an increase of the standard of living. 
And I'm certainly not going to stand, stay, stay, stand here and say that, that this is never the case. Sometimes it is. If you are in poverty and get more stuff or, or more money to lift you up to actually be able to provide better food and a safer place and all the rest, then yes, by all means, yes. But in the title of a famous book about giving, how much is enough? How many books are enough? How many clothes are enough? How many cars are enough? How much land is enough? How much of XYZ is enough? How many streaming services are enough? How many songs? How many instruments? How many toys? How many hobbies? How much is enough? And Piper, I think, rightfully just challenges us when he says, maybe the increase of finances for some of us now we're, we're, we're in this whole stuff that's going on. Most of us are not struggling with the increase of finances. I realize that. But here's a principle to put in your pocket for later. <laughs> but it's the assumption, maybe, maybe this is God's gift to us that we can maintain a life of, of simplicity and necessity and the things. And we voluntarily say God has given the, this not for ourselves, but to care for others so that there might, might be inequality. That out of our abundance, we have to give to those who have need. So may we just be challenged with that principle that increase of finances doesn't necessarily mean increase of standard of living. Maybe it means an increase of stewardship for the good of those who have need. And why? Why all this? Remember the center theological principle here, because the Lord Jesus Christ in a graciousness never before seen gave out of his abundance for us so that we might be ourselves generous to others. Why? Because we have hope for another world. And we know this world is not our home. And Jesus says things about buying and purchasing things that don't rot and rust and corrupt and where our treasures are, those that's where our hearts are also. So thank you for those of you who do faithfully give to RBC and to other ministries and supportive compassion and many other opportunities. Thankful for those of you who are living by that principle and understanding the stewardship of the grace of God. Thank you. Now, Lord willing, next week, I'm going to come back to address something that is in this passage. I just didn't have time to, to it's too big. Something else that I think is going on in what Paul is doing here, his focus and intention in caring for the Jerusalem believers has a very specific theological foundation or thrust to it. As I will try to show in the introduction next week, there's more here than meets the eye than just keeping a promise. And it's something that's crucial to the gospel itself. Amen. Let's pray, please. So, Lord, we ask your blessings on your word and even hard texts that are uncomfortable to preach and sometimes difficult to understand and apply. But we pray your blessings as we seek to work these principles into our hearts, knowing it's not one size fits all, one percentage for every person. But, Lord, you call us to remember that great um, sacrifice and graciousness of Jesus to expand our hearts to generosity 
to others. We pray in Christ's name.